0: Oh, did you hear that?
1: I did. Was that real? Or was that a sound effect?
0: Wow. It could have been a sound effect. I just smashed a glass that I was drinking water out of.
1: (laughs) Do you want to get another one?
0: I was recording through it too. Uh, No, I have a water bottle. I guess it's probably
1: fine.
0: I don't want to deal with this right now. Um, That was not the most graceful start to a show I've ever done.
1: That was great. That was really dramatic. I liked it
0: very dramatic i wonder if i'll keep it i'm going
1: gonna... to i think you should keep that that was a great sound
0: great sound it did sound like a sound effect if you're listening you
1: should sell it to uh, a sound effect company
0: i should i should how do I, how do you sell to like a foley artist and be like i have
1: but it's a thing it's a thing you can do
0: i think they the market's been cornered on glass shattering sounds i don't I know don't know
1: <laughs> you know what? they haven't heard this one this might be the best one
0: <laughs> they haven't heard this one the level of artistry i bring to this shatter <laughs> you're going to want it's going to be like you know the wilhelm scream the what the wilhelm scream have you ever heard of that
1: uh no is that a specific scream that's been used in everything
0: in so many things i'm pulling it up right now on youtube (laughs) because there's compilations (laughs) of it for like every like just every single movie ever okay let's see if you're
1: (laughs) 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 do you hear it yeah. It's pretty amazing. Do you know about the, the frog? There's like this frog sound that's universal, but it's actually a frog that's like from Southern California and doesn't live anywhere else. And other frogs don't sound like that, but it's the frog sound that everybody uses.
0: Oh, uh, no, I didn't know that one. That's pretty interesting. That just became like the universal frog sound.
1: Universal frog sound.
0: Wow. Like
1: ribbit, ribbit kind of thing.
0: I love that. That's a a funny thing about like how post-production works for audio. And have you ever seen someone who actually is a Foley artist who's creating these sound effects like (laughs) after the fact and how they do it in their studio? Have you ever seen those videos?
1: I haven't, but I think I read about like the dinosaur sounds in Jurassic Park. And I don't know. It's like all sorts of different animals combined together, like real animals combined together to make the sound or I don't know, it's, it's a fascinating art. I, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've
0: yeah. i not seen that. So okay, if you're listening, you tuned in, that was us having a fun, natural, a kind of cold open start, like you're listening to Mark Maron's podcast, and they're just in the middle of something in media rest, they call it. That was fun. I'm here with Annalie Levin. Annalie, you are a patron on Nori's podcast, Patreon. Thank you for supporting us. You also do so many things. So we start talking about uh, being a Foley artist and sound artistry. It wouldn't surprise me that if you also were involved in that given how many different media you touch, uh, you're a textile artist you work in food, you're a chef in training, you're in culinary school, you work at a restaurant, you're a beekeeper, you create things using captured CO2 as an artist in residence at Carbon Upcycling Technologies. How many things am I leaving out by the way? I'm sure there's just dozens of things that (laughs) you do.
1: Those are the main ones. Those are the important ones, I think.
0: Yeah. And rollerblader or no?
1: Roller skater. Yeah. I mentioned earlier, I do also roller skate, but it's not a big thing in my life. It's a, it's a minor side project.
0: <laughs> minor side project. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we just named a whole slew of various approaches to art. Is there some sort of relationship between these? How do you understand what you make?
1: Mm. I think what's most important to me when I'm thinking about making art is that I'm making it based on something in the real world. My artwork has always been some might call it political or about politics or climate change or things that are happening. It's, it's not necessarily like a lot of artists work from a really personal place. And I wouldn't say that's really where my artwork comes from. I mean, I guess it is coming from a personal place because it's the things that interest me personally, but I want to talk about kind of bigger issues and kind of help to educate people about those things. And I, I like to use humor in my work a lot. I also am really interested in in things like kitsch and Americana. And so that features a lot in my work. And I think I always think about my work having an audience. So, you know, I really like to make things. So I do a lot of like knitting, for example, <laughs> I like to knit sweaters, but that's kind of something I do for myself personally. And I really enjoy that craft, but I'm thinking about my, you know, so-called art with a capital A I always envision that someone else is going to see it and hopefully take some meaning from it. So I think that's maybe the the sort of guiding principle of when I'm thinking about making art.
0: Hmm. Okay. I didn't pick up on the impersonality part of it, but I did I was looking for connections between this because you it does seem like there is some sort of connection and much of it seems tactile, like there's a an interest in materiality versus art that's hanging in a frame, that's somehow like less interactive. Am I reading too much into that or is that something that you care about?
1: No, that's that's definitely true. Materials and material usage is really important to me, but also the tactile aspect of the things that I'm working with is really important to me. I do work a lot in textiles and otherwise I work in sculpture and sometimes they're textiles that, that are sculpture or sculpture that is textile, so to speak. Mm-hmm and i think it's because i really like to work with my hands and that's not to say that people who work in 2d aren't working with their hands so if you know if you're a painter or you're drawing you're definitely working with your hands but most of the things that i i make are more kind of more material i guess and more sculptural and that's just kind of how i relate to the world i think i like to shape things like physically shape things and that's how i i see things and imagine things i imagine them in 3d and I, I have a, a harder time with sort of 2D space. I, I sometimes imagine that I could become a painter and I have ideas of things that I want to paint. Sometimes I try to paint and I always come back to something more sculptural because I just find it much more satisfying personally.
0: I'd like to figure out why it feels more satisfying. It does to me too. But I feel an outsider to much of that material focus where most of the art that I've created in my life or worked on has been either word-based textual, which is the exact opposite of materiality, or it's been film, cinema, pick a pretentious word. I've worked in that thing. (laughs) Also something that you experience with your eyes and your brain that you're not touching. And in the last couple of years, I've become increasingly interested in interacting with physical space and, and objects. And it does something for me that the less removed from materiality does not do. And I'm not sure I can articulate why. Do you happen to know or help give me the language necessary to articulate why (laughs) it's important? I don't know if I can explain it.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think someone said something once about like craft being something learned with the body and not with the mind. Mm. And, you know, it's like, let's say you're like editing a film or something I think that's more of a mind thing. You're not really using your body in the same way if you're you're editing a film. And so, and I, I like that about craft in general. I mean, again, not that editing a film is not a craft. That's definitely a craft. But when we're talking about more material, physical crafts, there's something about maintaining a connection with your hands and, you know, also this like idea of flow, which Again, you could have editing a film, but for me, I really get that when I'm working with my hands and I find it really satisfying to get better at something because when you, when you try something for the first time with your hands, it's always difficult. Well, almost always difficult and gets easier over time. There's something really satisfying about getting better. I teach a lot of hand embroidery and it's, it's interesting because sometimes I'll sit down with a student. Well, pre-COVID, I (laughs) would sit down in person with a student and I would do something and they'd be like, oh, you make that look so easy, which I think is also something people say about like ballerinas, like ballerinas look so effortless when they're dancing. But obviously, they've spent years and years like honing their muscles and and training those skills. And it's the same thing, you know, with something like hand embroidery. Like I know where my fingers are. I know where the needle is. I can listen also to the thread and I can hear if the thread is doing something wrong because I've spent so many thousands of hours doing that thing. And because you can watch me and I'm making it look easy doesn't mean it's gonna be easy when you try it and you just have to keep practicing. And the, the better you get at it, the more satisfying it becomes. So I think that's what I like about my connection with my hands as I'm working. Like I can feel as I'm getting better with something. Like you mentioned that I'm in culinary school, chef in training, learning knife skills has been really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'm now working in a restaurant and I have these calluses in my hands from, you know, cutting stuff with a knife. And it just takes time to like, get it and to understand and to feel the motion of the knife. And that's something I'm very far from mastering my knife skills, but I'm getting better, and it's constantly satisfying. And you know, you just continue to learn and learn and learn, and that's what I really like about working with my hands. Does that satisfy some of the questions, your burning questions about physical materiality?
0: Oh, I got follow ups. There's more to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think too. Um, uh, I think in all the writing, I got better. But in some ways, I think some of the things I wrote early on are the things that if I reread them now, make me laugh the most that I'm most proud of. I think some of those, it was like every new writing project, the longer it is, it was almost the harder it would be because the more variables would be interacting over time and you have to pay things off in the right kind of order. And there's sort of like, writing a short story is also hard too like being succinct and telling a good story uh with brevity and that's certainly not easier but it's it's different and i'm trying to think if i ever felt like i was getting so much better at writing that it was able to sustain me i think the answer would be no but even just talking with elizabeth colbert recently i always say that her writing she's so good that she makes it look easy that when i read it i'm like oh i could write a book and i'm like oh that's because she's so good so Maybe I just wasn't called to be a writer in that kind of way. But even as an amateur, I do feel what you're describing about craft, where even if I'm working with wood and not doing so as an amazing craftsperson, I still know that I'm learning and improving throughout the process. And I do find that to be really rewarding in a way where writing and filmmaking did not feel that way, but I can't say that's universal. I think that's more my personal experience. I know there's editors and directors and writers who do feel that marginal improvement of craft time over time that allows them to keep coming back. I think I'm I'm curious if that is actually the the main difference. But you you think it might be?
1: Well, what you're saying about like the sto- writing a story is an interesting example because I think there you're still working with your mind. You know, you're working with word like you are. You're crafting you're moving things around, you're changing words. And there is some sort of like flow that you can get into with that. But it's not the same as working with your hands. Because when you're working with your hands, and you know what you're doing, your mind kind of shuts off, you know what I mean. And so I think that's kind of the difference between those two examples, your body can can truly learn something like if I'm embroidering, my body knows what I'm doing. And I don't have to think about it very hard, if at all, sometimes same thing with knitting, you know, I can knit and I don't have to look at my hands. I can like watch TV or hold a conversation with someone. And so I think the difference between these kind of more physical material kind of crafts versus crafts that involve the mind, you know, they're both crafts, but they're different, you know?
0: Yeah. There's something so satisfying in that muscle memory. Knitting's a good example. It was so hard for me to learn how to you know, the last step in a very basic knit when you're uh, like pulling the stitch off and then step right before I had a friend. I don't think she'd mind me saying this. She's been on the podcast a bunch of times. Uh, Lorraine Smith, I had her on a FaceTime. I'm like, okay. So I'm like at this step and I can't move it off and then have it keep going. Like watch this. And in hindsight, it feels so basic, and I can't believe it took me so much effort to get it. But now I'll be—you know—if you're watching TV or you're you're listening to music or a podcast or something, you just do it, and I find it really satisfying. And a—I don't know—am I onto something? Is that how you feel too?
1: No, absolutely. I I actually find it really hard to do something like watch TV or something that involves sitting without doing something with my hands at the same time. Like I find it unsatisfying. Like I'm being lazy. Like, you know, I, if I'm watching, if I'm watching some really trashy television, well, at least I'm knitting because oh. it's not something that I'm accomplishing at the same time. So it's both a feeling of accomplishment, but also like my hands are just itching to do something and, and they need to be doing something at all times. So I don't know. It's kind of a, it's a strong point and a weak point for me because I can't, I can't truly relax ever because I'm always doing something with my hands.
0: Huh, that's intriguing. What's your interest in kitsch? And what is kitsch?
1: Kitsch is really interesting to me because it's this thing that people love to hate, but ultimately they just love it. I mean, that's the whole point of it. Like, let's say you go, you go to the Eiffel Tower, you visit the Eiffel Tower in person and you buy a little Eiffel Tower and you bring it home and you put it on your shelf, and it it like holds this memory for you. And I think that's what I find really interesting about these little like knickknacks and things that we have around the house is that they mean something to you, they give you some sort of feeling, some sort of satisfaction. Sometimes it's universal, and some people see a Eiffel Tower and they have feelings about it, or like Mickey Mouse or whatever, People people have feelings about that. And so these items that are more universal, like you can go to someone's house and you can see these things in their house. Like I'm generally interested in how people decorate their homes, I should say. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of a thing of mine, like domestic objects and, and decoration. It's, it's something I'm interested in. And so you can kind of relate to people in a particular way, depending on on how they've decorated their house but they're also these like really horrible, like knickknacks. Like, why do I have all these things on my shelf? Like, just get rid of them. Like they're caught in clutter. Like the, you know, Marie Kondo, she would tell me to get rid of these things, but you can't get rid of them because they mean something to you. And um, I think it's a, a an interesting phenomenon. And so I, I kind of work with domestic objects in my artwork as sort of like a starting point because we all have a, a connection to these things. I mean, it's different in all cultures, you know depending on where you live those particular objects will be different things, but the idea is kind of universal.
0: Trying to think of some examples, maybe like an embroidered thing that says home sweet home or those things you'll see in suburbia around the country that says gather. Yeah. Or I also thought of the evil eye. Does that count as?
1: yeah. Yeah. I think that counts. It has this sort of like specific symbolism Which some people take more like seriously in in a you know semi more religious or spiritual sense, and then for other people it's like oh I've got my I've got my evil eye on my bracelet and I'm going to be safe you know, and and it's a really like kind of base version of of the same thing. Yeah, I I would definitely count evil eye in that for sure. Back when we were allowed to travel in 2019, I went to Uzbekistan on a sort of art and textiles tour, which was an incredible incredible experience, but they have a lot of like evil eye usage. And it's, you know, you put it on your textiles or 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 whatever the thing may be on your on your rug, etc. And it's to help protect you. And so we all need protection. So <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that, right?
0: Yeah, that's that's pretty intriguing. I've certainly seen a lot of those traveling and I did a semester in Istanbul. And yeah, the evil eye is everywhere. Mm-hmm. All over the Mediterranean, uh Middle East. Yeah. looks like as far as Uzbekistan, I'm sure it gets all the way. I'm sure it goes farther from there too.
1: Yeah. It's definitely all over the place. We, we all need something to believe in. So there you go.
0: There you go, man. I saw one thing in your bio that made me laugh. I love that there's a Royal school of needlework. Um, (laughs) It's like if someone that sounds like a joke, that would be when parks and rec goes to the UK, like that would be a thing that they would talk about. It doesn't sound real.
1: It's real. It's real. And it's in a palace. So I'm not even kidding. I used to go to school at a place called Hampton Court Palace, which is That's like uh, a Tudor
0: castle, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And they have little, um, little. I say little, like reenactment, you know, Henry VIII people walking around and you can see them in, in their outfits and they kind of wander around the castle. And uh, it's, yeah, it's great. It was a really, really fun place to go to school. But yeah, I I went there after I graduated from college because I started becoming more interested in hand embroidery. My mom taught me how to embroider a little bit when I was younger. And then when I was in college, I did a lot of sculpture, ceramics and things like that. And I, I actually got into embroidery because I was really tired of being dirty all the time. And I just thought I need a craft that's clean and that I can do on my couch is is literally what I thought to myself. And so I started picking up embroidery again and um, I made some political pieces that were embroidered and I, I was like, how do you learn how to do this better? And so I went on the internet and I found this woman, I found her portfolio and she had embroidered this dog, uh, this like like picturesque, perfect dog. And I was like, that's amazing. It, it was like a painting, you know, but embroidered. And I found that she went to the Royal School of Needlework. And I said, what? And so I, I looked it up, found it. I initially went to England for a few months and I I took some classes. And then I became obsessed and I kept going back and back. And then years later I ended up becoming one of their certified instructors through their a uh, program they called the Future Tutors Program. So in the UK, the teacher is called a tutor. So I did that, and then I moved to San Francisco, and I helped to start a school called the San Francisco School of Needlework and Design. And I worked there for a few years. So yeah, embroidery, uh, traditional hand embroidery is a, a big part of my education, and it's something I'm really interested in. I take a lot of pride in in all the things that I learned at the Royal School of Needlework, and I I love that I learned a craft in a really really traditional way, in, in a very strict way where you really want to do it right. And if you're stitching something and, you know, the teacher comes around, they'll tell you if it's not good enough <laughs> and then you have to take it out and then you have to do it again to try to make it better. And it's just a, a really interesting kind of education that was very different from studying art in school or in um, in college where you kind of just like, sure, you, you learn, you know, real skills. And, you know, you kind of try to master them, but there wasn't that expectation of perfection that you have at the Royal School of Needlework, and that's kind of what they're known for. And so it's been really fun as an artist to have that, like, very specific technical background and then to be able to take it and kind of do whatever I want with it. Um, Because I think when you have foundational skills like that, that really builds your ability to make more interesting work you know, and then there's a lot of uh, embroidery artists out there who aren't traditionally trained who also make beautiful work, much more expressive. I'm actually really, really terrible at making what I would call expressive artwork. Like I, I can't just, I can't just pick something up and like doodle it and feel good about it. I spend, you know, hours, weeks, months planning a piece before I even start it. And then I spend, a thousand hours or however many thousands of hours, like stitching a thing or making a thing, whatever it might be. And it's all like, it has to be perfect. Like I have a vision of it and I want it to be, I want it to look a certain way. And that's really important to me. And it like the idea of like picking up pastels and and just kind of scribbling some stuff. Like I can't, I can't do that. Which is funny because i am now, I'm making these crayons I guess we should talk about carbon at some point. I don't know. Go
0: ahead. I was going to, yeah, I was going to have to lampshade this and be like, I swear this has stuff to do with carbon it do with the... climate
1: change. It really does. Yeah.
0: Um, take us there.
1: You mentioned that uh, as the artist in residence with carbon upcycling technologies, the sort of story of how that came to be. And then to talk about crayons, which are related to pastels, that that's how I'm tying this all back in. <laughs> well, I was listening to the reversing climate change podcast that's why I'm here. Really, is because of this podcast in uh, 2019, and I learned about carbon capture, and the idea just fascinated me. It like really, you know, not to be funny, but it captured you know my imagination, and you know the idea that you can take CO2 out of the air and then turn it into something else. Like I, I couldn't imagine. I had never known that that was a thing, and so I became really excited about the idea of making CO2 into artwork. And I didn't know what that meant um, or how to do it. (laughs) So at the time I was preparing for an exhibition that was supposed to be in Berlin in 2020, but then COVID, so that didn't happen. But I'm grateful that I, I had been planning for that exhibition because some of the ideas I was thinking about at the time you know, carbon capture or working with CO2, it like tied in really well. And so I was planning on using CO2 as a part of the, like in the exhibition and the pieces for the exhibition. So I went online and I Googled, like, how to make art out of CO2. And obviously, that's not a, a Googleable thing.
0: There's just nothing, it's just empty.
1: Uh, not really. I mean, hmm. there, there is now, because oh, <laughs> I've been doing it. Yeah. And there's actually, there's another artist that's been working with carbon upcycling technologies called Luis Merchant. I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, but he's been painting with some of carbon upcycling's materials as well. So, so anyway, so I Googled, I found this website called Sky Baron. And on the site, they had some like concrete pens and concrete coasters made um, with CO2. And so I was like, concrete awesome. Like I can make something out of concrete. So that was my initial ideas. I wanted to make this installation out of using small sculptures made of concrete. So I emailed Sky Baron and I was like, hi, I'm an artist. I would like to make art using upcycled CO2. Can you help me? And the guy who has Sky Baron, uh, James Kahn, he wrote back to me and he literally wrote something like, oh, I've been thinking a lot about an art installation that uses CO2 recently. And so it's just kind of the perfect connection. And then he connected me with Carbon Upcycling Technologies, who you've had on the podcast, so people may be generally familiar, but they're one of the top 10 finalists in the Carbon X Prize right now, which should be announced sometime this year, which is very exciting. So he put me in touch with Carbon Upcycling, and I said, I'm an artist, I want to use some of your materials, yada, yada, yada. So they sent me a few of their materials to play around with. Most of them are, are like a powder. So what they do is they take CO2 and they adsorb it onto these powder materials and that uh, sequesters the CO2 into those materials. I'm sure they would have a more scientific way of describing it, but I think that's, that's kind of general, general idea they have these big machines that I don't understand and they do something that I don't understand, but I get to use the materials. So it's great. And the first material that was really interesting to me was something they call graphitic nanoplatelets. And it's basically a very fine graphite powder, you know, being a graphite powder, you know, I immediately thought, okay, I can draw with this. I can paint with this. I can make an ink out of this. I can dye fabric with it. So I started playing around with all those different iterations and I dyed fabric and I dyed thread and that was really interesting. And then I started thinking about how I could turn it into a writing material that's like something other than just mixing it with water. And I'm a beekeeper, so I took some of my beeswax and I thought, oh, I could make crayons. So I just melted beeswax and I added the graphitic nanoplatelets and it made the most beautiful, like incredible writing crayon. And, and that makes sense because the, the nature of graphite is that it kind of flakes off in these perfect little, I don't know, flakes. I'm sure there's a better term for it. And, and that's what makes graphite such a great writing material. And so, of course, when you mix it with the beeswax, it, again, makes a really great writing material. And so even though, as I said earlier, I'm not much of a pastel kind of drawer type person myself, I like the idea that I could... Make a set of crayons and share this idea with other people and give other people the opportunity to make something using CO2 themselves. And so, sort of creating a tool for creativity that other people could use excited me, as well as the fact that crayons themselves, like, you know, I consider these to be sculptures and I enjoy the process of making the shapes. I took a dowel and I sanded it down into a crayon shape. I made a mold of the the dowel. And then, you know, I got to play with a lot of different mixtures of different colors in order to make the set of crayons. And that was a really fun and interesting process. And then actually the most fun part of making the crayons was designing the crayon box. And that kind of goes back to this like idea of like making something with your hands and like crafting. And when I was at the Royal School of Needlework, one of my least favorite things that I had to do was make a box. It, it's like a considered sort of an embroidery sewing technique where you you design a box and sounds really boring, but you design, they're usually very elaborate boxes. You design an elaborate box, let's say, and you cover it with fabric and that fabric is embroidered and then it all has to fit together perfectly. So typically it has drawers or it has like a lid that opens or comes off. And so I learned a lot in the process of learning how to make a box. The box, by the way, that I made in school was a refrigerator and <laughs> that's the shape that it was. But they're just
0: and like, Lee. can't you just follow the rules? I can't Why follow
1: the rules. It was so, it was so cute. The bad
0: girl I, of embroidery.
1: I know. It was so cute. You know, those cards that when you open them, they like sing to you or they light oh, yeah. up. Sure. Okay. So I took the mechanism from one of those cards and it had a light in it and I put it in the refrigerator. So when you open the door, the light goes on. It was so satisfying. Unfortunately, the light battery has since died and I didn't make a mechanism that would make it easy to replace the battery. So now, unless I wanna take the box apart and, and put a new battery in, the light doesn't go on anymore. But that's an aside. So everything I learned in box making at the Royal School of Needlework helped me to make this box for the crayons to go into. And I just really enjoyed like making the tiny millimeter adjustments to the box and the little flaps so that they would fold together perfectly. And I was originally hand cutting them, which is insane, but like the first 10 or 15 boxes that I made, I, I hand cut all of them. And then I eventually found a place where you can have them die cut. And so they're just They come pre-cut and scored now, but I still have to like print them. And the ink that I use to print the boxes has the graphitic nanoplatelets in it. And then I have to glue the boxes. So it's it's all very manual, but but that's what I enjoy. So it's fine. So anyway, so I make crayons out of um, upcycled CO2.
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, among other things, but I'm holding the crayons. The box is very nicely made and the crayons are beautiful. I was going to ask how you... The dowel makes sense. I can see that's how you shaped these. But they're beautiful colors. This is the first time I've played with crayons, uh, I think, since I was a kid, or very nearly. So thank you, Annalie, for bringing me back.
1: You're welcome. You're welcome.
0: Yeah, it is a beautiful colors coming off of these. I think if you if you like carbon removal, you have kids who like playing with crayons and like drawing, or even if you're just a, an adult who wants to be transported back to your youth, I I think this would be fun. Do you think so?
1: Yeah, I hope so. That's the idea. I'm I'm actually now working on a set of watercolors, also Ooh. using carbon upcycling materials. And that's been really fun because, well, I should say so. When I first experimented with the crayons, I used my own beeswax because I had some laying around, but I only have at any given time one or two hives. So I don't actually have that much wax. So I had to buy wax from another beekeeper in order to make all the crayons. But I was reading about watercolors. And if you make watercolors on your own, like at home, and also historically, honey is a common ingredient. And so when I read that, I was like, well, I have to make, now I have to make watercolors because I have so much honey. I have an obscene amount of honey. I never even know what to do with all of it. But honey, I forget what the word is. It's, it's like humidicant or something like that. The word is something like that. And, and so honey, the way, the way it can absorb moisture, um, that, that contributes to it being a good ingredient for making a quality watercolor. So, yeah, so I've been playing around with watercolors recently, making them with my honey and the graffitic nanoplatelets and also a talc Material that carbon upcycling produces. So it's talc with um, CO2 embedded in it as well. And then I use earth pigments. I use a combination of earth pigments and man made pigments in the crayons because I found that the man made pigments drew a lot better than the earth pigments. So an earth pigment is basically ground up earth in, in essence or a rock that's been ground up really fine. And they didn't work as well as the man made pigments in the crayons. So I was sad when I had to use. Man-made pigments, but I suppose I've made man-made, used man-made CO2-embedded graphitic nanoplatelets, so it's only natural, right? But then for the watercolors, I'm trying to use just earth pigments, which I'm excited about. Indigo works well.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about. So I can see there's one that is sort of a darker blue, and that that clearly must be the indigo. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So that one has... So all, all four of the colors have graphitic nanoplatelets. The blue one has indigo in it. The brown one has iron oxide and another earth pigment in it. And the uh, green one has chromium oxide. Anyways, they're all earth pigments and chromium oxide, iron oxide, indigo, quartz, Hmm. the general ingredients.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask you this. That's a funny thing, working with natural ingredients like this and then seeing firsthand how some of the more chemical industrial uh, man-made pigments may work better than something more natural. Was that something that you already knew or did it sort of make your stomach turn in a weird way? Are you okay with that?
1: I didn't really, I've actually become really obsessed with pigments recently. So all because of this journey and it's like, it's going to get really deep and really dangerous (laughs) pretty soon. But I watched all of these videos on YouTube about like making pigments in a lab versus, you know, how to collect pigments from the earth and then grind them. And then, you know, and then there's dyes versus pigments. So I'm interested in both of them. So a, a dye, dissolves in water where as a pigment doesn't. That being said, I used graphitic nanoplatelets, which I which is a pigment. I use that to dye fabric. So you can you can still use a pigment to dye fabric, but it's just kind of a slightly different process. And
0: is it like a water and fat solubility thing or
1: well it's you- a water, it's a water solubility thing. And then I think it's also chemically and I'm I, I know people who know a lot more about dyeing than I do so I should say I'm definitely not an expert dyer. I'm a I'm an amateur dyer, but hmm. dyes kind of bond more chemically to the fibers. There's there's something about that as well. Versus a pigment I think kind of sits on the surface of you know in a way like kind of more sits on the surface of the fibers. Something like that.
0: Huh. But for the watercolors, you're going for natural pigments or natural.
1: So for the watercolors, I'm using natural earth pigments is my, Mm. is what I'm using so far. And that's kind of what I've been playing around with. But the, the man-made ones are really interesting because I can't remember which one it was that, what video I was watching, but it's like, they take something, whatever the material is, and they put it, you know, all these sciency terms. I'm not a scientist. So they take, <laughs> they take something and they put it in like a, a flask and then they heat it, and then it emits something. So maybe it emits methane, or I don't know. It's 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 all very interesting. And, and when you get into thinking about sort of the carbon footprint of a thing, or you know, for example, these crayons, like it kind of boggles my mind because you know, let's say for example, I don't remember if it was chromium oxide, but that is one of the ingredients in the crayons, like chromium oxide, let's say made in a lab, you like heat something and then it emits something into the air and then it turns into something else, right? And so, you know, if it's emitting CO2, you know, but then I ha- also have CO2 in the other materials, then, you know, thinking about like the car- overall carbon footprint of the crayon, So I can't, again, I can't remember the specifics of chromium oxide, but I definitely remember that one of the pigments, it's like you heat a thing and then something comes out of it. And it's really fascinating to me. And it's fascinating to me that that you can take CO2 and put it into another material to begin with. I mean, that to me still blows my mind. Clearly, I'm super excited about this as a material, as in carbon capture in general, as an idea. And it just, it feels really magical to me science. It's science.
0: It's science. Yeah. That's cool. I I definitely dig it. What's your intention? What are you trying to communicate by using captured carbon dioxide as, I don't know, feedstock for artistic materials?
1: I think currently my, my initial and most important sort of intention is just to talk about, well, let's talk about climate change and to talk about carbon capture as a potential climate change solution i mean not potential it is one but it's not very well known to the general public i think it's becoming like i see more and more articles written about it in you know places like whatever the new york times or you know people are talking about it more and especially now that we have biden as president you know i hope that these sorts of things will become more well known and part of it too is You know, kind of what I got from listening to reversing climate change when I first started listening, what I got from listening to the podcast was a sense of hope, which is something that I really lacked when it came to climate change beforehand, because I kind of thought, oh, you know, we've emitted all these things into the atmosphere and now we're just screwed and that's the end. And that's kind of where I was at. And then I listened to the podcast and I was like, oh, wow, people are actually doing things that could maybe help to reverse climate change. I mean, the concept of reversing climate change itself is really bold and interesting, but I also, I'm excited about it. I believe it can happen. I think we can do it. So by making these materials and kind of talking to people about the process and about CO2 and the fact that you can do different things with it. I want other people to be excited and I want other people to have hope because I think there's a lack of hope out there. So that's my main objective right now is just kind of the education piece. And then we'll see where it it goes from there to be determined.
0: Determined. Yeah. Oh, I also have a very nice worry stone that I like to, what is the verb of interacting with the worry stone? I
1: don't know. I don't know. I, I really, I really struggle with, with the correct verb for the worry stone. And when I've written about it, I don't know, I guess you rub <laughs> it, but there's, there might be a better, there might be a better word. You worry it. I don't know. <laughs> the, the you, worry, worry. <laughs> you worry it. The worry stone that you have, I should also mention. So that's made out of concrete and it has in it, what's called enhanced fly ash, which is another material from carbon upcycling and the the fly ash it's enhanced, so to speak by the CO2. And that was the original thing when I was looking at the Sky Baron website, this idea of like concrete really fascinated me. I don't know if the word is handful or a number of different companies. I don't know how many different companies are experimenting with sort of sequestering CO2 into uh, concrete, but I know there's quite a few doing it in different ways. And, you know, that sort of technology, again, is one of these things that gives me hope, because when you think about the very small scale of what you can do on a day to day basis as an individual in order to fight climate change, you know, like I can walk to work, I can eat less meat. I'm gonna use less plastic. Like all these things that people are trying to do, I think are great and really important. But in terms of the large scale of the problem, for me being able to imagine, okay, what if all of the cement factories in the world, you know, captured their CO2 and then put it back into the concrete. Like, that, like that's exciting to me. So these little concrete sculptures I originally wanted to take and create a big installation, like a big pile of them that people could take one with them as they go as sort of like a reminder of, you know, both the fact that climate change is something that's in our hands. But so something to remind you of climate change, but something to kind of give you hope. And that was kind of my idea with the Little Worry Stones. And they're actually the original worry stone that I have. I've had since I was a child. And so I have this little worry stone. It's like a little blue stone and I made a mold of that. And that's where the, the sort of pattern for the, the worry stone that I, I I'm selling comes from. Oh, wow. So, I
0: didn't know that. That's a, a nice little personal touch. Yeah. I don't know if you just got like some sort of CAD file for a worry stone. in the No, object. no, yeah. I'm
1: not, I'm not that fancy. I don't, I, I try not to use my computer for anything when I, when I need something like that, I, I, I have to ask someone to help me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's a really good example and a nice segue to what I was going to ask you about, because your work, what you just said strikes me as very earthy, crafty, sort of, uh, low tech intentionally. So you're, you're creating objet dart, which I'm gonna assume I'm using correctly, and you can tell me if that's actually wrong. <laughs>
1: <later>. <laughs> we'll go um, with it. Go with it.
0: Okay, you're creating object art, and you're using industrially captured CO2 in order to make it. But many of these things are still I experience as earthy, tactile things. And then also, I'm gonna connect this broadly to where you're going in the future, which is I know you're interested in uh, cooking. I imagine you want to use uh, regeneratively grown ingredients. I imagine in the future, you'd like to be creating textiles with regenerative wool or leather. I'm not even, I am not sure if you ever work with leather, but right. Like there is something that you're sort of like transcending both the organic and the industrial man-made and they're sort of coexisting inside of this carbon removal aesthetic.
1: Is that, yeah. is that true? That's super, that's very accurate. Yeah. And that's important to me. I, I'm, yeah, I'm super crafty. I want to do everything by hand, but I'm relying on this material made by this company that's using a magical machine that I don't understand and involves lots of science, you know, like, and yeah. And I do want to start a farm. I want it to be regenerative. I want it to be a carbon farm, you know, so to speak. And I want to be like, you know, I want to be like in the dirt. I want to be like really close to the earth in that way. But I think that we need both things, you know, in order to solve climate change. And so, and I I think technology is great, you know, like look at where we are as humans and all the things that we can do, like all all the medical technologies we have, you know, like freeway overpasses to speak of like concrete. Like Mm -hmm. I, I like all of these things. I like, I like cities and I like being in the country. And I want both of those things. And I think that we can have both of those things. And I don't think that they're mutually exclusive so I like the idea that I can bring the two together, that I can take beeswax, you know, from my backyard and put it together with this material that was magically created by super scientists and has embedded CO2 in it. I think that's really exciting.
0: Was that an intentional choice from the beginning or were you just opportunistic about what kind of materials you had access to?
1: Um, hmm, I don't know. That's a good question. I think that I, when I can, I I do choose to use materials that I have access to easily. Like if I'm, you know, working on something in my studio unrelated to, you know, carbon capture or, or whatnot, I use a lot of found materials. I really like to go antiquing. I like to go to like thrift stores and junk stores, junkyards, you know, those materials I really enjoy because they have a history to them. So, When I use the found material, it's both from an ethos of like wanting to recycle something um, as well as I I like the history of that material. And I think that it makes the piece of art more interesting. So there's that aspect to it. But then, you know, if I could capture CO2 myself and then use it in my artwork, I would, but I can't. So I have to rely on others to help me with that. I think that's fine.
0: Yeah, I think that's fine. I'm just curious how that works in operation. One connection I just made too, in in my mind is you told me about a book that I've been reading and enjoying by Harold McGee called On Food and Cooking. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, This book is comprehensive. So we reference a lot of books. Warning, do not buy this book unless you want an 800 page paperweight, unless you're (laughs) willing to (laughs) really dig in. It's awesome though. It's basically like when I think about scientific approaches to cooking or like the modernist kitchen or alton brown or stuff that's focusing on the chemistry of how food is made but that also strikes me as very antithetical to how I view you too basically i'm viewing you as unidimensional Annalie, as sort of like an earthy arts and crafts movement uh throwback and you're so much more than that and i'm trying to be like how are you reading these like chemical chemistry approaches to food and cooking, shouldn't she be be, being one of those people who are like, um, Jacques Pepin being like, I don't need a thermometer. I just touch the meat and I know the, I know what it is inside, (laughs) you know?
1: (laughs) I I would love to be that person, but ultimately speaking of like cooking, like I'm so new really, I've only been in this world for the last year or so. And the fact that somebody else has already figured out this stuff for me and can just tell me that it takes six and a half minutes to make a soft boiled egg, like, great, like, now I have that information. And I can, I can do that, you know. So I think I, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, so to speak, like, if I didn't read books, I'm sure I guess I'd have some ideas of, of things in my head. But, you know, books really help us. And I like, I love on food and cooking, because it's, so technical i mean speaking of eggs like the egg section is just crazy and the the dairy section i mean all the different things that that you can learn from that book and then it makes your cooking so much easier you know once you understand like how proteins brown and it makes a particular reaction and that's why you know meat tastes a certain way like that's really interesting to me so i want to know all the science behind it i don't want to like imagine if you had to learn how to cook a steak all by yourself just you and the steak, you would mess up so many steaks. I definitely have, yeah. You know, and that would be such a waste of all those steaks. Like speaking of the environment, you might as well have someone tell you how to do it correctly. And then you don't have to waste a bunch of time and a bunch of energy. I mean, that's not to say I, I love to experiment. I mean, making the crayons, that was a complete science experiment. Like there's another, I mentioned the talc material from carbon upcycling. For some reason it like did not it did not work with the wax. Like something weird happened and it got all bubbly. And I kept trying to do it different ways, like letting it cool to a particular temperature and then trying to add the material, you know, and I just couldn't get it to work right. Same thing with the colors, like, you know, experimenting with the earth pigments versus the man-made pigments. Sometimes you have to learn those things on your own. And I had to learn these on my own because nobody else has made these crayons before. But if someone had written a book about it, you're, dang, right, I would have read that book already. And that's just, I don't know, I want i want all the information that anyone can give me. And if I can't find it, I'll figure it out myself.
0: Yeah, that's fair. So in this unfair, unidimensional version of you that I was applying on would be like, ancestral wisdom passed down from eleven to eleven for history. <laughs> Wait, that's not your maiden name, though, is it? Is that actually is that no, your? No,
1: that's my. Yeah, that's my my maiden name. I never from, changed my name.
0: Okay. From, I'm from, married,
1: but my I'm I'm still eleven.
0: From eleven to eleven, all the way back to Anna Karenina. That's how yeah. far back it goes. Yeah, um, exactly. As opposed to like on food and cooking, which is the opposite of that. Then again, so you can also like maybe there's some middle ground, like I can listen to Samine nose rat t- teach me about the Mayard reaction, and that's perfectly fine by me. <laughs> like it feels it can be warm and sciencey, and maybe yeah. that's maybe that's the sort of union that we're I'm trying to point us towards. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, this comes definitely comes right back around to craft and the idea of making things with your hands. Like, if I read a book about embroidery, I'm not going to know how to embroider, you know. If if I read a book about cooking, I'm not going to know how to cook. You have to still do the thing and you still have to, you have to use your hands and you have to try it. There's just no way to get the results and the the muscle memory from just reading a book. Like You know, it's nice to know about a thing, but to do a thing is really different.
0: I feel personally attacked, but okay. That
1: was a personal attack on you. I'm sorry. Uh,
0: The the thing is, I know all these chefy things and I read these books and I listen to the memoirs and I watch the shows. I'm not really that good of a cook. I try dang it. I really try and I, I keep getting better, but it's not nearly as fast as I might like. That's what I was saying is I wish there was like a culinary school for like normal people. I don't, I don't know that I necessarily want a culinary career, but I want some, I want that baseline. You know, I, mm-hmm. we were talking about, I want someone mean to watch me Julian, like a million carrots or something. Yeah. And
1: yeah. then
0: I'm like, ah, oh, I have that knife skill now. I can, <laughs> but.
1: It helps. I mean, like, like I described the Royal School of Needlework earlier, that's kind of what it was like. I'm not saying that they were mean and they were like slapping my hand or anything, but you know, you would do something and they would come around and they would look at it And they would be straight with you. They'd be like, that's not good. Or you can do better or, you know, and they just want you to be your best. And I don't want to be yelled at, but I like that kind of learning environment where someone is straight with me instead of being nice to me and letting me think that I'm doing the right thing. You know, like I want to know when I'm doing something wrong because that's the best way to improve. So
0: that's a good way to be. Um, Would you say something similar or? Maybe a better way to say it is what advice might you give to someone who wants to get involved with something like this wants to be crafty isn't sure where to start
1: Well it's a broad question I guess you have to first focus your energy on what specific craft you're interested in and just go with your gut I mean if you've never tried it before whether it's you know woodworking or sculpting or you know watercoloring or cooking you know, pick some roller skating. There's great roller skating online videos I've been watching recently on YouTube.
0: For anything on YouTube, it exists.
1: you can do anything on YouTube. Yeah, you just have to jump in. And I think if you can find, you know, it's a little harder today with COVID and like not being able to meet in person with people. But if you can find a mentor, that's really helpful. I think if you can find someone who, or a club, I was in a watercolor club for a while when I was in college Like if you can find a group of people who are interested in the thing that you're interested in, then you just have to try it and do it. When I started culinary school last January, it was so nice because all of a sudden I was surrounded by a group of people who were interested in what I was interested in. You know, we all came from such different backgrounds and in terms of our regular work or other interests. And, but we all had this one thing in common and it's just really nice to, to sit down and chat with people. And this is where I'm going to put in a plug for your book club, because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm in the, the Nori Reversing Climate Change book club, which means that we get to read a book once a month that's loosely related or directly, <laughs> depends, related to climate change. And then we all get to hang out on Zoom and talk about the book. And that's really nice. So yeah, find, just, you just got to find your people, I think.
0: Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for the shout out. I'm glad you're in there. I'm glad you're enjoying it. It's been a lot of fun. We get to have authors come by and hang out sometimes too. That's always fun. If you want to join that, the link is in the show notes. And speaking of which, Annalie, how can people support your work? How can they buy the things that you're creating the aforementioned objet (laughs) d'art? (laughs) <laughs> God, I feel I feel so terrible saying that. <laughs> it feels, Great. Feel, and it's
1: in a perfect French accent.
0: Uh, I, I can't fake that one. Yeah. Sorry, I tried. I took French too.
1: Whew. No, it felt good. Um, um, if yeah. you're interested specifically in the carbon capture related work that I'm doing, I have a website that's capturedcarbon.studio, like .studio instead of .com. And I have an Instagram that's also at capturedcarbon.studio. And then I have an Instagram about other embroidery related things, but not necessarily carbon, which is just annalee.levin. And also a website with my other artwork, info. all sorts of places. I'm great. everywhere.
0: Great. Links to all those things are in the show notes. Um, you should buy this stuff. You should... I think it would make great gifts. It's beautiful well-designed i like that the worry stone comes in a in a nice little like cloth envelope i don't know you have a lot of like really nice touches like you you clearly put some thought into not just sending me a stone with no context i feel like (laughs) it arrived as a as a thing that you clearly you clearly designed very intentionally is that how you see it
1: yeah, it is. And it's also, I'm reusing scraps of fabric. So the Worry stone comes in a little bag that has my test prints from a textile design that I did uh, called the Keeling Curve. So based on the Keeling Curve. And so that's what the the printing is on that piece of fabric, but it's actually my test fabric. Because I've also made some, they're not on the website yet, but I've made t-shirts and tote bags that have this Keeling Curve print on them. And then I have, I have some other textiles on my website that are, they're sort of samples for couture garments and which are not for sale, but I'm hoping to make some, some smaller pieces that, that will be for sale as well. So yeah, so I, I do try to be intentional and also to reuse stuff when I can. And I think that the scrap fabric turned out really well. It's little, little bags for the worry stones. So yeah.
0: Any idea where you're going to go next?
1: I have so many ideas it's a little bit it's a little bit overwhelming. Well the the textiles I'll I'll try not to say to bore you and say too many things but the textile samples that I made I made with sequins made with captured carbon and that I that I handmade out of these little nurdles which are little pieces of plastic used in injection molding and those came from carbon upcycling but so with the the textiles with the sequins I really want to work with a designer to make a dress or or a series of outfits for something like the Met Gala or the Oscars, some sort of big event like that, again, to sort of publicize this idea of putting CO2 into something else, I think is really exciting. And I want more people to know about it. Mm. Um, and I want to make more wax sculptures, again, using all the waste from all my failed crayon experiments, which I have a lot. I have all this wax that in all these different colors and I have some ideas for some wax sculptures, I have ideas for concrete sculptures, more textiles, just so many things, so many things.
0: Wow. And it's a long-term vision to have a sort of wild biochar, regenerative farm, restaurant, sculpture garden, carbon negative gift shop. Is that the... Yeah,
1: (laughs) you really just you put all my interests into one, and that is my goal. Yeah, I do. I want to have a farm. I want to have a carbon negative brewery. I'm really obsessed with biochar, which Ross and I have discussed previously. That's a longer story. So many things. I want to have a restaurant. I want to make delicious food, local ingredients, zero waste restaurant. You know, all the things. Lots of carbon removal involved. Save the planet
0: where's the biochar in these? I, I sort of would not have been surprised if it had showed up in any of these.
1: In in the artwork or in mm-hmm.
0: the. In the worry uh, stone or the crayons or or maybe if, some other project.
1: I've got ideas. I've got huh. ideas. Yeah. I haven't gone there yet, but I have ideas and I also have a collection of naturally made biochar, if you will, from a wildfire that burnt down a house, a family house of my families, but surrounding forests all had these like burnt down trees. And I collected all of this, you know, quote unquote biochar from the the forest fire. And um, I've used it a bit as like charcoal for drawing, but I also want to like make make biochar on a larger scale in the future somehow. We'll do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's super cool. Well, links to all of Annalie's amazing creative projects are in the show notes. Buy some stuff, look at some stuff, track what you're doing in the future. Thanks for being here, Annalie.
1: Thank you so much. It's been great.
0: Yeah, for me too. And also thank you for for being a patron of the show. You can hang with us, do the book club with us. Uh, It's $10 a month. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much. And goodbye for now.